Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. My name is David Lally. I'm the producer of the show, and I know we may be in challenging times, but that's just why we've been working on shows to keep us upbeat and focused on the good stuff. Let's listen in. Well, top of the morning to you, and welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. I'm excited to welcome back to our show today our very first guest on the podcast. 220 episodes ago, 9 million downloads ago, uh, we had the great John O'Leary. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I encourage you to go to episode two and to hear more of John's incredible story. There's a guy that as a nine-year-old boy was burned over 100% of his body. He was given a 1% chance to live. And he's come back through that and become a profound, inspirational character with a great message. We've had him on our stages at Buffini Company many, many times. We've referred him to dozens of organizations we have relationships with when they need someone to really fire up their troops. And I'm really excited to talk about something other than pandemics and setbacks. This is a guy that's overcome something very, very severe and uh, has lived to tell the tale and thrives accordingly and has a great family right there in St. Louis and a great bunch of kids. And He's just a good man, and we've been good friends now for a long time. And he's just written a brand new book called In Awe. John and I were talking offline today. He's like, what, what do we want to do here for our audience? And I go, I want to talk about something inspiring. I want to talk about something encouraging. I want to talk about something other than politics, media, pandemics, economics. I want to talk about something that really makes life go. And that's what this is all about. What really brought about the inspiration for writing the book? Where, where did that come from? Brian? Outside of being in your household and being on your stage, what I find with the majority of adult listeners and learners is that they struggle in life. They endure the day. They find it to be taxing and exhausting. They do more and more with less and less. They feel beat up every single day, and that's by lunch hour. They wait for vacations that don't come for the next 11 and a half months. It's like they're always waiting for life to occur. They're not living present in the moment. And then I would leave the stages, leave these arenas, leave these ballrooms and these boardrooms, walk into school buildings. When I'm on the road, and I don't like room service, I like to work. And I, I love to be in front of kids. What I would see in front of these kids, like first graders, second graders, was unbridled joy. They, they would skip into the room. They would smile more frequently. They would laugh more easily. When I would ask them questions, their hands would all go up, usually before I was done asking the question. They were completely on fire, lit up with the possibility of their lives. They were optimistic, Brian. They had the immigrant edge, man. They really, they really did believe that life was good and the best days were in front of them. So seeing the dichotomy between kids, who we all were, and adults, who many of us are, I wondered, what is it that they have? Why do we lose it? And how do we return to it? Well, and obviously, you know, it is a very interesting position. Many people desire the life of a public speaker without knowing all the costs and challenges involved. And one of the hidden challenges I've always believed is when you're looking into the eyes of an audience member that so desperately needs what you have, and as much as they want to go where you're going, you know that for many of them, they're going right back to where they were before. And it, sometimes you know, it can be a haunting experience where you know, my gosh, I know I could help that person, but I, I've, whether I couldn't reach them or they just weren't ready, yeah. I don't know what it is. And then you would go and do, whether it was these YMCA gigs or these schools and whatever else, and you'd have this contrast between these high-powered 
corporate meetings with all the AV and, and giant corporations and all the money behind it. And yet you go into the simple platform with a school and you see something radically different. And here's the thing. All the people in the ballroom used to be those kids in the school, right? Mm-hmm. All the people in the ballroom looking at you, arms folded, who want to give it to you, but don't seem to be able to give it to you. They used to be those kids who'd raise their hands before the question was asked. And so I would imagine it's quite a contrast that ultimately, you know, you'd come off your, your success with your book on fire and you'd seen how you could reach people that way too. And we were very excited to be part of that launch of that uh, best-selling book was in awe a way of, hey, I found this other way to reach people. I have this lesson to share. I'm seeing all these young people get lit up and I want to help folks that may be a little burned out, a little frustrated, Henry David Thoreau, people living quiet lives of desperation. How can I reintroduce them to that sense of wonder and awe, that childlike faith we often talk about? Brian, you're exactly right. And, and you, we would hear from older friends, oh, really enjoy these days with your kids because they're fleeting. And pretty soon they're going to be gone, not just gone from your house, but gone from your heart. They're going to pull back. Mm. They're going to raise their hand less frequently. They're going to smile less often. They're going to engage less often. And so I, I wrote this book not only for the audiences around the world, to be totally candid with you, I wrote it for my four children so that they would mm. remember again as they age who they once were. It's like the inside of a tree, man. You can tell what a tree went through when you cut it down and look at the ring. These kids have joy. They have optimism. They have faithfulness. They have connectivity mm. to themselves and to one another. They don't have ego. They don't have a whole lot of stress. They don't have a whole, whole lot of anxiety. And yet the days are coming when all that they don't have, they will have. And all that they currently mm. have, they will lose. And I want to re- make sure they know, and anyone else who cares to find out, what remains possible in all of our lives. Nice. Well, you talk about five senses in the book, wonder, expectancy, immersion, belonging, and freedom. As it seems to me, the five observations you made of, of these people who are living in awe. And maybe we could take a few minutes, if you have, to just kind of, I'd love to go through it. I like the teaching aspect, as you know. So talk to me about wonder and what you discovered. Hmm. Wonder is probably my favorite. Well, they're all my favorite. It's like your kids. Which one's your favorite? Yeah, right. The one that's in front of you who is asking the question. So wonder is an incredible sense. Wonder is it's really two part. One is this idea of first time living. For those of you who uh, mm. either have children, have seen children, or maybe you once were a child, <laughs> remember the first time you saw a butterfly or a firefly or the Pacific Ocean or a rainbow or an earthworm. It doesn't have to be the big stuff. It's the little stuff. They find profound wonder in all of it. And remember the first time, for those of us who have ever stood on an altar, you said the words, I do. And the sacredness, the gift of that moment, and you believed it. But after the honeymoon, and after a couple of weeks and a couple of months, it's, honey, I have to. I have to. Remember your first job, how excited you were around that. And then you lose that sense of wonder, that sense of first-time experience. So I invite our readers back in the book in awe to remember what it's like to see something for the first time with a sense of profound gratitude and sacredness for what is in front of you which then lends itself to the second part, which is asking questions about it. I think we learn in school, Brian, not to ask questions, not to raise your hand high. We actually learn the opposite, that there is one answer to the question. There is no E. Mm. It's a Scantron test, A, B, C, and D. Put your hand down and answer it. Those who answer right move forward in the class. Those who raise their hand and say, well, what's where's E? Why do I have to draw within the line? It's into the principal's office. We learn that on the bench in softball. We learn it at home, at the dinner table. And so we learn in life to stop asking questions, stop being full of wonder, and stop to be so inquisitive 
around why things are the way they are and is there a better way to operate? You think about it in our recent pandemic, one of the things that was removed was so much of our conveniences, conveniences that we took for granted, that we didn't give a second thought to, the presumptions we make. You know, I was driving down the freeway like three weeks into the stay helm orders and my, my bride and I have a, a van full of groceries. We're driving down the freeway. There's no one on the road. And then these two truckers are on either side of us and, you know, loaded to the gills, heading to a grocery store. And man, I was like, I was somewhere between a kid and a redneck at a NASCAR race. You know, I started laying into the horn. I roll the window down. I start doing the international symbol for honking the horn. Both of these truckers are pulling the horns down. And I was just, it was the first time in my life where I wasn't like, man, these trucks are on the road. These cars are too big. They're kind of dangerous when you drive next to them. And all of a sudden, I was filled with this sense of, I'm so appreciative. These dudes are out there getting it done, allowing people to stay at home. They're delivering groceries so people can get fed. They probably drove all night. When the convenience is removed, you know, wonder can increase. I mean, now is a chance for us to actually, instead of where my fast food isn't fast enough and my the service line is too long and what's going on now, it's like, oh my gosh, the restaurant's open. And, and here I was looking at these folks on the freeway. I went to the grocery store that day and I was talking to one of the cashiers. They said, you know what? It's been kind of the best time ever to work at a grocery store because normally you're the invisible person. You're just, you're here. Can you get my shopping out of here as quick as I can and swipe my card? This one guy said, I've been, I've been uh, in the grocery business for 28 years. I've heard more thank yous in the last few weeks than I've heard in the last 28 years. So I think the timing is perfect. I think the timing for the book right now is perfect because I think we need a little more wonder and we need to understand the joy of the simple things of life and to remember those things. And as convenience is stripped away, you know, to get back to that state of, you know, just being genuinely delighted with something that's simple. Brian, we used to look at the guys on the athletic field and cheer for her and cheer for him and cheer for them as the heroes. And those folks have been chased away from the courts and from the field. Mm-hmm. And now you see people quite literally lining up six feet apart outside of hospitals to give healthcare workers standing ovations. You see people mm-hmm. lining up as the truck pulls into the station to applaud the driver. And then the person is going to unload that into the stores for the work that they do as essential employees, as essential servants, as leaders in life. And so it's so cool that we are redefining now appropriately what real heroism looks like. And it's, it's the right approach. You know, as you know, Brian, I got burned 33 years ago. I saw heroes in my life 24 hours a day for five and a half months in hospital. And they weren't mm. usually the highest paid, paid ones in the room. It was the custodial workers. It was Lavelle. It was Roy, the nurse. It was these ordinary mm-hmm. people who were extraordinary. And through their efforts, my life was far better. Yeah. And you were given something that forced you to be aware. A, a very famous friend of mine, he, he's a, a religious leader. And he said, somewhere inside the infinite love of God, there's a place for suffering. And somewhere inside that suffering and difficulties, things get stripped away, things get removed, and we get to see the beauty of what is, and we get to see the wonder, you know, right. and, and I'll be candid with you, you know, it, the more successful we become or affluent we become, the less easy it is to, be, to find wonder in anything. So what, what would be a tip for somebody who's sitting here and hasn't felt that sense of wonder in a, in a while? What would be something that could help somebody experience that sense of wonder? Mm. So, Brian, last time I was at your house, we looked west and we saw this body of water and it blew me away. And I have a feeling that you and your family, and this is not me judging, it's just me predicting. We may overlook that frequently when we see it out our window every day. 
And for those of you listening from the mountains, we take for granted what is close to us almost always, whether that's family, health, freedom, citizenship, wealth, work, pick your trade, man. What is closest to us, we also take for granted most frequently. And so my highest and best advice around this topic would be to wake up tomorrow morning about an hour earlier than you're used to. So for most of you, that's going to be around 845, 9 o'clock. Get up before the sun is up is the point. Get up before the kids are up. Get up before the trucks are driving by and the phone is ringing and emails are popping and CNN is broadcasting the bad news of the day. Get up before it all. Go out to the porch. Look east. And then watch in bewilderment again as the light cuts through the darkness. We ought to be moved with every sunrise. And I think we sleep in. We miss it. And if you can sit on your deck with a coffee or tea in hand and watch that light come through the darkness again and ask yourself the question, why me? And sit there in that silence. And as the birds are chirping and God is speaking, write down what you're hearing. Why me? And then answer it with the words, I am grateful for my health, my freedom, the ability to hear these birdies singing, man, that sun lighting into my eyes. Write down what you're grateful for. And then take an inventory of what you have. You're more likely to, uh, to multiply the very things that matter most. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. By the way, every night our family goes out to watch the sunset, just so you know. So we, we still live in, uh, in wonder of that. So it's pretty neat. Expectancy. Talk to me about expectancy and, and how does that work? There's a book you've read, I'm sure, and many of us have read or heard of, and some of us probably believe in called The Secret. And The Secret is if you shut your eyes and think of something, it happens. And that's just not true. But, but here's what is true. Mm-hmm. When you shut your eyes and you dream of something, and you start talking about something, you start making phone calls differently, writing thank you letters differently, moving in different directions and working out what you thought might happen actually begins to happen in front of you. That's not a secret. It's called movement. Movement is highly underrated. So expectancy, mm. expectancy is about moving in the direction of the things that you want to see happen. Pharmaceuticals have a tough time with this because whether they put an actual chemical, a drug out there on the marketplace or a sugar pill, what they find is in both cases, patients get better. It's the placebo effect, man. So whether you're taking Mm -hmm. sugar or you're taking an actual pill, you're going to get a little bit better because you're going to think that it's going to happen. You're going to pray that it's going to happen. You're going to dream that it's going to happen. You're going to start dieting differently, working out differently, stepping into life completely differently. So kids, this is where it comes back to children and then then how it applies to us. Kids expect beauty all day long. They just expect Mm -hmm. greatness. They expect today is going to be Christmas again. I, I, uh, like my son Henry in right before I was writing this book. And he said, Dad, how many more days until Christmas? Okay. <laughs> it was December 28th. Okay. So I'm like, uh, a brother is like 364, man. 363 or whatever it is. And he goes, awesome. Can we make a countdown? But th- th- this little man still has wrapping paper tape on his fingers from Christmas morning. He's still got eggnog on his lips from Christmas morning, and he's already getting ready to do the countdown to the next Christmas morning. Mm. That's how Mm. kids expect great things in their life. What are you expecting that's great? Because if you're watching the news right now, you're expecting death for yourself, for your loved ones, for your family, for your business, and for everybody else around you. So I'm begging you right now, don't be an expert in the news. They are there primarily to sell you a bill of lies, keep you paying attention, sell you two minutes of commercials, and then having you hooked and, and sunk for the next round. So Listen, life is better seen through your own lens, the lens of truth. Look east, watch that sunrise, as Brian and his family do each night, watch it set, and expect great things in your life and in the lives of those you serve and you love. Just don't be surprised when you actually move in the direction of making it so. 
That's great. I love how you say in the book, kids bring their baseball glove to the game. And even though there's thousands <laughs> of people in the stands, they actually expect they're going to catch a ball. And, and here's the point. Are we even bringing our glove to the game? Are we even bringing our glove to the game? Do we have an expectancy that this year could be better than that year, that we can improve, that we can grow, that we can be successful, that we can have that innovation, that we can take our business to the next level, that the marriage can be better, that our relationships can be restored and built with our families? Are you bringing your glove to the game? And I think that's part of being in awe of life. I mean, nothing makes you appreciate life more than death. You know, mm-hmm. and when you go to a funeral and you see, okay, this is, this is it, and it just puts things in perspective. And one of the dynamics is, Bring your glove to the game. Bring your glove to the game of life. Show up. And uh, who knows? Somebody's going to catch a fly ball. It might as well be you. You know? Why not? I write in the book a little bit about it, Brian, but uh, my son Patrick is the biggest baseball fan I personally know. He's also the most joyful human being I've ever met. The fact that I get to raise him is, is mind-blowing. I just so He's an amazing little boy. But as you have the honor of doing, I do as well, which means I get to travel around the country and around the world. And Patrick and all the kids get to choose every summer where they want to go with that. So they pick the trip. They book the hotel. They book the museums. They book everything we do when, when we're on the road, what restaurants we go to, when we go to the pool, when we come back and watch a movie. They book it all. And so he always books the city where dad is speaking and the Cardinals happen to be playing. This mm. is a true story. You can come to my house and I'll, I'll talk, talk you through this on the screen porch when you're ready. Three consecutive years, he's picked Kansas City year one, Pittsburgh year two, and Cincinnati last year, year three. Three consecutive years, we've driven to these places. Three consecutive years, he's worn his glove for the entire ride to these stadiums. And three consecutive years, I'm not kidding, he has caught a foul ball. Wow. Now listen, you can say that's the the greatest luck story of all time, but I'm telling you this. If you don't bring a glove, it's less likely you're going to catch it. If you're not Mm. watching every pitch, it's less likely you'll see a ball when it's racing your way. When the balls come my way, Brian, I duck. There's my leadership. When the balls (laughs) come our way, Patrick stands, reaches his glove high, and catches it. So whether you're in real estate, you're leading a business, or your family, your faith life, like Brian's encouraging you, bring your glove. Just don't be surprised when the ball ends up inside of it. Right, don't be shocked. The the third sense you talked about is immersion. So talk to me about this a little bit. (laughs) So I, I... Henry's my, uh, he's just an amazing boy. He's got more energy than I will in a million lifetimes. And I came home for the book launch two days ago. And uh, all of the kids had a special surprise for dad based on one sense, one sense. And so one of them did expectancy and one of them did you know, wonder. And Henry had immersion, but he couldn't remember the word. And then mm-hmm. he goes, wait a second, wait a second. Oh, it begins with an E, it begins with an E. Immersion, <laughs> got it, immersion. <laughs> And for those who aren't laughing, immersion begins with an I, so uh, don't judge the O'Leary's with the way we've taught our kids how to spell. You got the word right. And what immersion ultimately means is being fully engaged in the moment. We think in real estate, we think in business, we think as a family leader that the more things we do, the more we multitask, the more we can get done. But all research points in the opposite direction, that when you are laser focused, you get far more done. When you keep your phone off, you get far more done. When you stay focused with the one in front of you, you get far more accomplished. So that, that chapter is a bit about being focused on the thing and the things that actually matter, but going through mm-hmm. the process when you are at work, work like a dog. When you're at home, play like a puppy. And don't forget mm, to take time to run. I love that. I think we should be unapologetic when we are having fun, when we are playing, when you and your bride are out walking the Pacific, watching that sunset, Brian. But we should also decide that when we're at work, we're not at home. And we're not mm-hmm. with our friends. And we're not at happy hour. But when you're at work, 
really be laser focused on seeing how much you can possibly get accomplished during that time. What kids do, when they're in science, they're in science. But the bell rings and they go out to recess and they play. They're not thinking about science. Then they come back in and they do English and they work hard in English. Then the bell rings and they eat lunch and then they take nappy time. It's mm-hmm. important that we not try to multitask, but we be focused on the day that matters, on the task that matters. And then ultimately, Brian, making sure that the ladder you're climbing is leaning up against the right wall. Man, there'd be nothing more miserable to get to the end of your life and realize that you are successful things that ultimately don't matter. I love it. Work like a dog, play like a puppy. I mean, no doubt, no doubt. I've made a lot of mistakes in that area of my life. You know, as you're an immigrant, you come here with nothing, fighting through recessions and setbacks and six kids and all of that stuff. You know, a high sense of drive to start with. And I've really had to learn, for me, I've had to learn the discipline of play. And uh, just that I have to set it aside. I have to carve it out. You know, what I've learned, and it's funny you talk about immersion, is what I've learned when I enjoy my kids most is when I'm into them. You know, so whatever they're into. I have a son who's mad into Star Wars. So a couple of years ago, we went to London for the Star Wars celebration, they call it. And I'm, it's four in the morning. We're sitting on concrete, the whole family. And I'm like, I said to my bride, I go, Beverly, I, 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 Jesus is the only person I'd get up for at four in the morning and sit on concrete for. And... Uh, you know, here we are. And you know why? Because we're into what our kids are into. We had a great time. We had a great connection. You know, so I'm into whatever my kids are into. And I find that that immersion creates a sense of intimacy with my family and, mm. and, and loved ones, you know. And so this sense of awe, this dynamic that you're talking about, this childlike awe, you know, it's funny. When I was reading all the notes and preparing for our conversation today, you know, it dawned on me. You know, I built a company, you know, that coaches and trains people. And along the way, I I had an investment business that owns a lot of commercial real estate. And this is a strength of mine. This is something I know about. I've made a lot of money in this area. But I named the company Technon. And Technon is the Greek word for child. Hmm. And the reason being is that I didn't want to reside on my own strength. I didn't want it to be my own pride. I wanted to have childlike faith as I went into each transaction and as I looked at it. And as also, obviously... I wanted to build an inheritance that also would benefit my children. Just a couple of days ago, my second grandchild was born. So, you know, that was that was that dynamic. But it was interesting having this document around called Technon just reminded me all the time, you know, to have this childlike faith, this childlike attitude, even in the area of strength or knowledge or wisdom. Because at the end of the day, we don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's coming down the road. You don't know when there's going to be a recession. You don't know when there's going to be a war. You don't know when there's going to be a virus. And we miss out on a lot of life because we're too busy working like a dog and we need to immerse ourselves in life and, and play like a puppy. So I love that. This fourth one, now I'm gonna, I want you to really kind of dig this out for me a little bit because I feel like this is a big answer for where our culture is struggling today. The fourth sense here was belonging and that when you're living in awe, you have this sense of belonging. And it's interesting, people have been staying at home. You know, we're looking at... Divorce rates are spiking up. Australia just produced its suicide rate is up 50%. There's all of these things coming down. I think when all the data's shook loose for all kinds of people, we're going to see how much damage was done far beyond a, a virus here. And one of the things that I think people are really struggling with is this sense of belonging. You know, they can't go to their sports teams. They can't connect that way. So talk about this very, very important principle called belonging in the context of in awe. Brian, in 2018, Harvard Business Review did a study on media. 
94% of news stories were negative. And this was during a time when the stock market was at a historic high and unemployment was at a historic low and markets around the world with uh, real estate were just crushing it. 94 plus percent of news stories were negative. What, what's the result of this? Uh, it's a great question. Here it is. 1.5 million Americans last year attempted suicide. During one of the most successful periods of time in the history of the world, one and a half million Americans no longer saw value in them taking the next step forward in their life. More than half of us feel as if we're doing life by ourselves, according to Cigna. This was before the pandemic. This was before the recession. This is before we tuned in every night to see how bad the world is now. So if that was happening when I was writing the book, it pains me to think about what's happening right now, as you said, with Australia, around the country, around the world. This is the true pandemic, the mental pandemic of what is happening, this cancer that is spreading, that is telling us our lives are not worthy and the best days are behind us, not in front of us. For six consecutive years as a nation, we've had a negative outlook on where we think we're going next. So for those of you who hate Trump, fine. We also had it when President Obama was in office. For those of you who hate President Obama, fine. We also had it now that President Trump is in office. So this is not a political thing. This is a societal issue. Societal Mm. issue. Part of it is faithfulness. Part of it is, though, the sense of belonging. The sense of knowing who you are, whose you are. How you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror and how you connect authentically to those around you. Regardless of income, regardless of race, regardless of passport, regardless of market conditions. None of it ought to be dependent upon these things. And so, so this idea of belonging was really important to me as I was writing this book during a period of profound prosperity. But it's ironic and I think appropriate that it's probably the most needed sense right now we have, Ryan, this idea of truly belonging. Mm-hmm. How can a person develop that in an authentic way? Because there's so much belonging is done in artificial ways. We, you know, we've seen right. the studies on, in L.A. of kids becoming gang members. We see people who... Uh, kind of check out to their life. I mean, you're you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan. You know, Jack Buck was one of the great heroes in your early life that, you know, championed you to live again and championed you. And again, I still hope the Jack Buck movie gets made. And when they make the Jack Buck movie, you will be in that. Your story <laughs> as a kid will be in that. You know, it's, it's sensational and life-changing. But so you're a fanatical uh, St. Louis Cardinals fan and Cardinal Red and, and all that kind of good stuff. But there's a deeper belonging. And I feel like sometimes, and I'm a sports guy. You know this. I played sports. I married an athlete. All our kids are sports people. We say when it comes to academics, we're great athletes. (laughs) I have four college athletes right now. I have one gal pursuing the Olympics, and I have a kid who played college football. So all six were athletes, and I understand that whole thing about belonging that way. But I think it's artificial, and I think it's not nearly as deep. I think a lot of people check out into belonging to Red Sox Nation and Yankee Nation or whatever it is. This true sense of belonging, what does it really mean to you? And and how can folks listening to this maybe feeling isolated or lonely? You know, the worst feeling in the world is to be in a crowd full of people feeling alone. How can people have a deeper sense of belonging? So, Brian, I think what you're speaking to is exactly how all of us are feeling right now. This, This desire to fully connect and fit in. Maybe the best way to begin answering that question is to share a personal story of from about Nine years ago, I was in the restroom shaving. My pants were on, my shirt was off. For those who have never seen me physically, I have scars that cover me from my neck all the way down to my toes. I'm missing my fingers on both hands. So that's me in the restroom shaving early in the morning, getting ready for the day in front of me. And to my right is a four-year-old little boy named Jack. Jack's Ryan O'Leary, my oldest. He's a, he's a precious <laughs> little guy. And he's got the cover on the razor. He's, he's got the cream on his face bed and he's shaving too right next to his daddy 
And then he stops shaving. He looks over at me and he starts with his index finger tracking one of the scars on my, my stomach. Mm. I, I have thick scars all over my body, but they're no, the thickest by far are on my belly. They're just thick red scars and bands. And they're embarrassing. And uh, they, they, they bind me. They're, they're painful. And they remind me of all that I lost in some regards. And mm. so I see him tracking this, this scar and I see his little index finger rubbing up and down it. And then I see him set his shaver down. I see him look up at his dad and he goes, Daddy, your tummy is red, it is bumpy, and it is ridgy. So now, Brian, my ego is saying, oh, I got to prepare myself to like let him know, <laughs> don't be scared. Your daddy got burned when he was a kid, but he's all right. He can still love you and all this bull, man. It's my right. ego. And then before I can start explaining away the situation to him and reminding him, I belong. I'm okay. I got friends on Facebook. I belong. What he says to me is this. And daddy, I love it. I just love your red, bumpy, ridgy tummy. Wow. The way a child sees life is the way mm. we got to get this right. The way a child sees life is the way we must, again, see the reflection in the mirror. We are so freaking focused on the wrinkles and what we don't have and how we don't measure up and how our parents were right that we'd never be successful in all this garbage that we carry forward. We need to be reminded we are mm. sacred treasure. The likelihood of you being here, and I shared this, by the way, with my kids in Ireland. We were in the back roads of Ireland going to Killarney, I believe. And they were like, yeah, well, what's the chance of us being here? And we started talking about the math, and the math works out this way. The likelihood of your mother and your father coming together at right the, the right moment. And we're going to have an after-hours conversation with Brian Buffini and John O'Leary on Biology 101, for those of you interested. <laughs> but we'll do a high level right now. The mathematical odds of you being here in this life, alive as you are, with what you have, is one in 400 trillion. The very fact that Brian Buffini is in the house is shocking, and we're worried about gray hair. And the very mm -hmm. fact that John O'Leary is in this room is less than 100, one in 400 trillion, and I'm worried about scars on my tummy. Kids mm -hmm. aren't. The ego's not mm -hmm. developed. They see it all with this lens of, of grandiose awe. And that, that changes what they see. It changes how they interact. It changes how they connect. It changes how they love. It changes what they build. It changes the life they live. And you don't need to be five to do it. And I'm sorry. Wow. Look, I can tell I'm animated. I really care about this. This is a life and death issue. It's really important to think this stuff through and get it right. Well, especially now. And I guarantee a lot of people are encouraged right now because, you know, in our faith tradition, both you and I are Christian men. And, you know, Christ used to say, let the children come to me. And you had to have the faith like a child. And this is why. It wasn't some flimsy statement. There's immense strength in that. There's immense joy in that. And it's profound. And that little Jack O'Leary, what, what a character and what a, what a crusader for what is good and what is pure and what is loving. And again, what do we do? As we get older, we just see the crack in the Liberty Bell. We forget about the Liberty Bell and we forget about liberty. And that's what the final point I want to talk to you about here. Uh, it's a hot topic in our world today. A lot of people are confused about what this looks like, and especially in America, what does this mean today? I mean, I've had conversations with attorney generals. I've asked some very direct questions, and there's a lot of folks today are very confused on, on freedom and what does freedom mean and the value of it and the virtue of it. But I'm curious in the context of living in awe, what does freedom mean in this context? Well, I think most of us think we're free, but then are you really? 
Are you free of the memories from yesterday? Are you free from the anxieties of tomorrow? Are you free from the way that when she says that one thing, it gets under your skin every single time? Are you free of that? Are you free of all these concerns that bind you to who, you, who you're not and how you don't stack up? And Brian, one of the stories I share in the book, and it's the first time I ever shared it, so it was kind of hard to get it out there. It was my therapy and sharing, but it was the story of Jack Buck, which you've heard a million different times. You're the one that's going to be cast in the role of Jack Buck. You'll need to lose the accent <laughs> and you'll be a perfect character for it. Jack Buck poured his life into me, not only for the five months I was in hospital, but for the decade and a half that followed. He just kept investing the best of what he had in a little boy named John O'Leary. He slowly grew up. And at age 24, I was. He's 79. He could get sick with not only Parkinson's disease, but with cancer. And he's going to spend the final five months in the hospital, Brian. It's, it's the exact same amount of time as a little boy mm. that I spent in hospital. Could there be a better overlay, man? Here's the time for O'Leary to make amends, as those of us who've gone through AA have done. He's, I have a chance to make amends and be the friend for him that he was for me for all these years. I get to visit him daily for five months, as he did for me for the five months I was in hospital. So now the question is, so, John, as a free man who's an author and a speaker and now a father and all these things, how many times did you visit that man in hospital? The answer pains me, but it is zero. Mm. So you're talking to a man who thought he was free. But I visited Jack Buck zero times in hospital, not because I was busy or too successful, but because I was unworthy. <laughs> I was never, ever once worthy in my mind of the love and the grace and the gifts that he showered upon me. And if you're not worthy to receive something, you're also not worthy to give it back, Brian. So I was never once worthy in his life of being the friend to him that he was to me, which, which just is brutal. And then his son calls and asks me to go to his funeral. So, you know, I'm going to step up at the end of the day, in the end of the day to be the hero, ride in, man, on the horse and jump at the funeral. So I do. I pull into the funeral, the tack church. I'm tidying my little tie right before I walk in. I look in the mirror of the car and I see this ownership team for the St. Louis Cardinals walking past my car. They're probably popping out of a really nice, beautiful car. I'm popping out of a beat-down Jeep. And then I look to my left, and there's a Hall of Famer getting out to my left and a football player over to my right. And I realize, even in the funeral parlor, I don't belong. Even in this parking lot, I don't, I don't fit, fit in. And so this little boy who uh, was free, the world thought, was far from it. And Brian, I turned the car back on. I pulled out of that driveway, pulled away from that church, made it about three miles down the road pulled over and had the kind of ugly cry that you don't frequently have as a man. Okay. I, I wept bitter tears, man. They were, they were, they were tears and the kind of tears where you use the right sleeve to get, get it for a while. And then you got to switch to the left sleeve too, because it's just not, you don't have enough on that right sleeve. And after about 45 minutes of this, I stopped crying and realized I had lost the opportunity to be there at his funeral. I'd lost the opportunity to be there at the end of his life, but I was not going to lose the opportunity to live his life going forward for others. And I was at a church right up on my grandma and grandpa's. And so I swung by their house for the first time uninvited. I've been to their house a million times, but never just stopping by to say, I love you. And man, you would have thought it was publisher's clearing house with Ed McMahon showing up with a $13 million check for grandma and grandpa. They were blown away that their son, their grandson would make time for them in the business of his day. And I walked in and I just hugged them. We spent a couple hours. We talked about the great depression and how they met each other in the war. Following that, I took my parents out to dinner. I shared words with them that I'd never shared. And the words were, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for guiding me through the difficult time in the hospital. Thank you for seeing a future far greater than the one that I had for myself. Thank you for being my steadfast encouragers in my life going forward. Thank you for sharing your faith with me and making sure it was part of my journey. 
and then did something I'd never done either, Brian. I learned how to become a hospital chaplain. Hmm. I'd um, promised myself to never, ever go back into a hospital. Once you leave, it's like leaving the prison. You and I have been mm-hmm. there, man. You don't want to. You don't want to go back, and so you make the commitment mm-hmm. not to go back. I never went back to hospital until after Jack Buck died, and I realized where he met me is where I maybe called to meet others. So I spent three years working with kids, just trying to be a steady, positive presence in their life, encouraging them to take the next step forward and to see beyond the struggle that they have right now. Mm-hmm. I took his wife, Carol, his widow now, out to lunch. And uh, over tears, I told her that I love her. I loved her husband. And I wanted to thank her for being part of this great man's life. And she appreciated it. I took Joe, the Hall of Fame announcer himself. This is the surviving son out to lunch. And I read a love letter that I wrote his dad. The words begin that that letter, Dear Jack. Brian, you teach people how to write letters. And I wrote a five-page letter to Jack Buck because he was no longer able to hear it. I read it to Joe. And we both had tears coming down our cheeks from the Starbucks in St. Louis. When I was old enough to uh, finally have my own children, we named our first son after someone I wanted him to become just like. And it's not John, not Brian, although I love Brian Buffini. I named our first son after a great man named Jack Buck. And so, listen, I got life so wrong for 24 years. I told myself I was free, but I was the farthest thing from being free indeed. And his death was what finally woke me up to what I had been missing and what I was called to do next. And so for me, freedom is being a available to show up and be fully present to those in your life that matter. And sometimes that is indeed the reflection in the mirror. Wow. Amazing. Well, it turned out old Jack had one more lesson to teach you, Jono. And uh, how amazing is that? And for those of you not as familiar with Jack Book's work, like I say, Voice of the Cardinals, NFL, he was a great announcer. But my favorite Jack Book experience, and I, I check in about every six months I watch this, and uh, they should rebroadcast it now, was when Jack Buck spoke on the open mic down on the field, which was never his bent. He was never down on the field. But when he spoke to the St. Louis Cardinals fans following 9-11 and this gravelly voice, should we play? And of course we should. And it was just like, if God was a smoker, that's what it should sound like. You know, (laughs) it's just the greatest voice of all time. And an inspiration, you want to get goosebumps? Go on YouTube, Jack Buck, post 9-11. And it's a speech we need today. And, and here's the thing. The good news is, you know, you have the freedom to tell that story today. You had the freedom to go use, use the lessons today. You had the freedom to go and share with, with Joe Buck and, and Jack's widow and the freedom to go be a chaplain in a hospital. And that's the beautiful thing is that it can take a long time. And we can talk about government freedoms and we can talk about societal freedoms but the truth of the matter is most of us are living in a prison of our own making and that freedom's available and that freedom's available to all of us. And uh, I really commend you on this book. I'm going to read a, a quote. I rarely do this, but our good friend, our mutual friend, Mel Robbins, wrote an endorsement for your book, John. And I just think it's powerful. And it says, in a world full of negativity, John O'Leary will remind you that you always have a choice. Life is still good and the best days remain ahead. This is a must read. You'll be in awe at how John changes your outlook and the possibilities you'll see that still present yourself in your life. In awe, uh, rediscover your childlike wonder to unleash inspiration, meaning, and joy. You can pick it up anywhere that great books are sold. It is a great book. John O'Leary, I got to say this to you. We've known each other a long time, and you've been in the advanced Brian Buffini coaching program, the belt sander of love, which is 
you got to come and spend some time and and hear a bunch of very hard to hear off stage direct lines. I, I challenged you. I challenged you to tell more than just your story when you were a kid. I challenged you to be an inspiration. I challenged you to, to dig deeper and to bring more of who you were and what you'd learned to the table. And I, I just hearing your voice, I'll be candid with you. The guy that's sitting in front of me today and the guy I interviewed 200 episodes ago, it's inspiring. And it's inspiring for me. It's, it should be inspiring for everybody that no matter who we are or where we are, there's still so much more and who we can be. This is a, this is a very powerful work. I wish you absolute God's blessing. And I hope that this book becomes a positive virus that spreads around uh, the country and the culture and the world. I'm glad you've gotten a chance to be at home off the speaking circuit for the past couple of months here and spend time with the fam. I'm sure it'll be a time you never forget. But thank you for blessing our audience today. Thank you for your words of wisdom. And thanks for writing the book that I think uh, is more needed right at this minute than definitely when you even had it in mind. And God does things like that. You know, he, he, you write it, but he, he releases it. So I'm glad we could be a part of it today to get the ball rolling. I would encourage everyone listening to this, go get a copy of this book, go live it, go learn it, and go live a life where you're rediscovering your childlike wonder and live in awe. I'm certainly inspired by this today. Jono, thanks for coming on the call. I, I appreciate the podcast today. You're a blessing. Brian, I must add, my friend, that uh, chapter 22 includes a story about a man who came over from Ireland with his grandfather's wisdom. Brian, can you put your name on it? Can you put your name on it, lad? And uh, the idea of working well to such a degree that you are proud to sign your name at the end of each day on whatever you touched. You didn't tell me that story when we first met, but you challenged me to be bold enough in my life to be able to put my name on whatever I touched. And I will never forget your guidance, your mentorship, your friendship. And uh, your willingness to see far, far over the horizon what I was currently seeing for myself. And so, brother, I love you. I appreciate you. And Beverly, you're phenomenal parents. You're even better people. And you're an awesome example to me and Beth. Well, thank you, bro. Appreciate it. And thanks again for blessing so many people today. And uh, I wish everyone would go and take full advantage of that opportunity to go get the copy of In Awe. Well, that was great. Re-interviewing the great John O'Leary. And excited that I believe initially uh, all the proceeds of the sale of this book are going to the Boys and Girls Club, which I know he's a board member of. So just really appreciated being on there with John today. And uh, let me leave you with a little blessing. May the roads rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, as God holds you in the hollow of his hand, you're sitting there, you're resting in God's hand, and you're in awe. We'll see you next time.